0: Like this show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free and they have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more.
1: And welcome to the Vocal Fries Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination.
0: I'm Carrie Gillen. And I'm Megan Figueroa. Today we have an email I'd like to start with. Technically, emailed us before the last episode. I thought we'd save it for this time.
1: Oh my gosh, you just sounded like you were bragging about how popular we were. We are. Oh my God, speaking of
0: popular, <laughs> suddenly on Twitter, we finally blew up on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> finally. Yes. <laughs> so, welcome to any new listeners who came to us via that twitter thread by gerald roche
1: yes that's exciting because we have a really important episode today so
0: yeah it
1: is really important
0: but anyway we'll get to that in a minute so we have an email today from ed hi carrie and megan just wanted to first of all say thank you for the great podcast work i've been listening to you guys for about a year now and it's been fab Ah. (laughs) my name's ed and i just finished my master's at the university of edinburgh in scotland I ended up studying a whole module on linguistic discrimination there and loved it. In fact, my professor told me about this podcast originally. Oh, awesome. While I was there, I wrote a paper and eventually a dissertation about filmic representation of real slash fake dialects, and I had a lot of fun doing it, and I thought maybe it would be something you guys would like to talk about on the show. In particular, I wrote about Hollywood Indian English, which is a variety of English that only exists in the media and not real-like, to simplify, but the issue runs much deeper than that. There's a particular book on the subject called Dialect in Film and Literature by Jane Hodson, which I believe covers certain issues in the field pretty well. If you like, I can link you my particular paper, too. Yes, please send it to us. I should have responded sooner. Yeah, we can share it. Yeah, we'll uh, put it up on Tumblr yeah. and our website, and we'll share it on Twitter. So yes, hope you guys are doing well.
1: Ed. Thanks, Ed. Yes, thank you. I, I always like to hear um, pop culture stuff um, that's related to linguistic discrimination or linguistic injustice, as um Gerald said. I loved that. That was great. Yes. Cause it's both, right? I mean, of course it's discrimination, yeah, yeah. but that leads to injustice.
0: That's that's the For whole sure. point.
1: For sure. I think that it's important that we talk about how it's reflected in our pop culture because that's something everyone can connect to and see and start being like responsible consumers of media and all of that. So
0: Yeah. And Indian English is very problematic for a lot of obvious reasons. It makes Indigenous peoples of North America sound slow and dumb. Mm -hmm. It's also represented, like, when it's written, there'll be hyphens everywhere between every syllable to make it look, like, almost, like, gibberish. Yes. And it really, it really upsets me.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, are you talking about, like, in novels and uh, and when they're doing dialogue? You're right. Yeah. Uh, Oh, speaking of... Well, not a novel, but a book. Nice transition. <laughs> thank you. Finally. It's all, I, it's all I ever try to do is just be smooth. <laughs> that was probably one of the smoother ones. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we got an advanced reader copy of Word Slut by Amanda Montell, And what was it? Was it Lisa Davidson who tweeted at us and said that um, um, Amanda was her student?
0: I believe that's right, yes.
1: Yes, and asked her about the the IPA, or the International Phonetic Alphabet Spelling of Word Slut, to put on the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she was excited that she went with... Uh,
0: her recommendation, with, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, it's really nerdy from the start, because it has IPA on the front.
0: That's true. <laughs> and I appreciate a good use of the IPA. Yeah,
1: I have not... I've actually uh, seen Amanda Montel on on lots of websites because she writes about a lot of things. Um, but I haven't gotten that far into it because <laughs> this is I have given myself three books to read <laughs> this um, month um, by Black women, uh, and I'm reading *Eloquent r- Eloquent Rage* right now. By the way, which is relevant to us too. Just we've talked about before, like tone policing and all of that. Anyway, right cool but uh how far have you gone uh
0: I've read the preface in chapter one so I'm very early days but um I have lots of things like lots of uh stickies
1: oh my gosh we're um <laughs> listeners listeners I can see all the stickies sticking out of her uh her book it's very prefer- <laughs> professorial
0: oh god I guess I still have some professorial yeah, tendencies not- <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things like the, the very first thing is actually the very first thing that jumped out at me in the preface was, so I'll just read it. So we're, we're also living in a time where we find respected media outlets and public figures circulating criticisms of women, vo- women's voices. Like that, they speak too much with uh, with vocal fry, overuse the words like and literally, and apologize in excess. They brand judgments like these, these as pseudo-feminist advice aimed at helping women talk with quote more authority, so that they can be quote taken more seriously. What they don't seem to realize is that they're actually keeping women in a state of self-questioning, keeping them quiet for no objectively logical reason other than that they they don't like the sound, they don't sound like middle-aged white men. And this is exactly mm-hmm. what we've been Listen. saying. Listen. Over and, over and over and over again. Everybody, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't want to say that our whole podcast, um, when we talk about women, can be like um, just summed up in one paragraph. But like almost, <laughs> this is
0: this is like very close. Almost. I mean, that is what we've been saying over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah, they're trying to shut us up. We're not going to shut up.
1: And just don't so, just don't take those that kind of advice. What man. did you call it? Like, Benevolent sexism, which is not you who first came up with it. As I once lied that that paragraph is it stuck out stuck it stuck out to me too um and yeah i feel like i was i've only read um a little bit of it but i'm like that's what we've been fucking saying we're doing okay we're we're getting the good word out you know like and there's there's other people that are trying to get the good word out yes yes so that's exciting yeah and in chapter
0: one she talks about swear words like cunt and Mm. things and uh which we talked about in one of our episodes as well. And basically, she comes to similar conclusions.
1: Yeah. And then, like, it's a very simple cover, but, like, it, I think that it is done well because people are going to be like, what is this book with word slut just, like, splashed across the front of it?
0: And it kind of looks like a dictionary entry, so if you're, like, mm-hmm. at all interested in anything to do with lexicography, I think you'll be like, yeah, I need this book. So, well done.
1: Yes, very <laughs> I don't know if it was her or if she has a cool marketing person or the Harper Wave um Yeah, the there's publisher. a lot of people involved in this yeah. decision
0: probably. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading more of it. If anything else uh, comes up that makes my eyes bug out, I'll definitely bring it up in future episodes. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, if anything raises your hackles like um but like in a good way, like in a oh, we're in this fight together way, which has been been my um experience in the first uh, 18 pages. Very cool. And if anyone wants to send us any more advanced reader copies, it is my dream! This is this is what I have been doing this podcast for. Just kidding. Honestly, um. when
0: I was like in undergrad <laughs> still, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I just knew that I liked reading and linguistics, of course. But I knew I liked reading, and I thought, what if I could have a job with all I had to do was read? Oh. <laughs>
1: so if this turns into that oh my god I mean I'm gonna be so stoked (laughs) sign me up (laughs) I'm really excited about this episode this is like I don't know um so important I hope that everyone who listens shares it with somebody um and this episode is about housing discrimination with PhD student Kelly Wright and please do listen share it's so important it's really truly very important Uh, here with Kelly Wright, who is an experimental sociolinguist who's pursuing her doctorate at the University of Michigan. Um, Her work combines theory and methodology from sociolinguistics, neuroscience, phonetics, corpus linguistics, and machine learning. Um, And right now she is studying dialect discrimination in the housing market, um, looking specifically at how perceived racial and regional identities shape access and opportunity for minority speakers. Thank you so much for being here, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with you today about this. I was just in New York for the LSA and I went to the Tenement Museum. Do you know it? I do, yes. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. It's it's unlike anything I've ever seen. You get to go in the Lower East Side into an old apartment building and they tell you the stories of people that live there. Um, and I just I I I think so much about renting and housing discrimination and so i'm so excited to talk to you about this um just kind of start from uh the beginning really um and set up some context what is housing discrimination what does it look like in real life
2: yeah so um in 1968 um we passed the fair housing act um, here in the United States, and that protects home buyers from discrimination based on a number of protected classes. So that is um, race, color, sex, national origin, religion, familial status, or disability. And that list has actually never been edited. So those are the only classes that are protected under the Fair Housing Act. Still to this day, it's been 50 years. It's fine. Um, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Nothing's changed in that time frame. Yeah, not at all,
1: the, yeah. the wheels of progress go slow or something. <laughs> right. I'm not exactly Sorry. sure exactly, you know,
2: what color uh, means. So what it looks like, what it legally looks like, there are a couple of different ways. So there's discriminatory housing ads. And you'll notice that if you look at like any Craigslist ad is like, does this look discriminatory? Please flag it. Um, so that would just be like basically somebody saying something very specific, like, you know, no Muslims or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. Which does happen. Yikes. Um, yeah. Which I have no, seen yeah. um, in my in my work. Well, is this kind of
1: similar to how I've seen ads that say we are LGBT friendly? Because there must be
2: ads out there, out there that are like
1: discriminatory.
2: Right. So usually, um, the cases that are most successful are about that kind of thing. Um, there's also like some different terms and conditions that are given to different people. So basically, um, if you might have like two people of different backgrounds in, in a family, they, one person calls one day and gets a different offer than somebody who calls the next day. Um, so I've heard a lot of personal stories from people, um, sharing that kind of thing with me after I started talking about this stuff publicly. There's also um, steering is something. So um, I show up, they, I don't look like I sounded on the phone and they suggest a property in a different area, or I call about a property in a lower income area and they suggest something in a higher income area that that's illegal. They're supposed to give me information about what I call about. Yeah. So this is kind of, this is what housing discrimination looks like is sort of, you just don't get access to anything that you can afford. Wow.
1: And I guess I'd never thought about the opposite where they would tell you something about something that's higher right that it costs more Right.
0: Right. Because, uh, yeah, we don't we, yeah, we don't normally think about it in that in that direction.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I get that a lot, especially from people who are like American and um, are looking for property in another country, like in the UK, or they move like to Germany or something. And they're like, oh, you definitely don't want to be here. You want to be with like other American speakers in a different place, like this kind of place. Uh uh-huh. I get a lot of stories from people who are just like, no, I really want to live in this neighborhood like (laughs) I just like it here or it has exposed brick like it's what everyone wants right now.
0: So do you know anything about the laws in the UK or Germany or like do they have similar kinds of housing uh, laws? I don't
2: don't know as much about them. I haven't um, studied individual cases there. Um, It's just like anecdotal evidence from like people um, who know I work on this and call me and like this has happened to me. This has happened to me. So it's definitely it's ubiquitous. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm um so when I lived
1: in downtown Phoenix where it's quite expensive, when I was applying for an apartment, I they were happy to have me because I qualified as low income mm-hmm. and I am stereotypically someone who they don't find threatening. So they in Arizona or at least in Phoenix, I don't know if it's like a local thing, but you have to have a certain amount of low income people in apartment buildings right? housing
2: that's actually where i did my pilot work was in phoenix oh yeah. really yeah oh
1: oh <laughs> that's, so, that's interesting <laughs> oh my gosh i have housing discrimination splaining to you but but <laughs> no, it no, actually no, no, like no, yeah 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 but no it did it did happen to me i was like oh this this person that's quote selling me this apartment or, you know is excited that i'm low income <laughs> yeah uh, i just knew that they were like cha-ching and I was like, this is fucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I
2: actually didn't know that. That's interesting Um, because I had, yeah, some, some like unexpected pilot results kind of. And uh, that sort of like puts into perspective some of the places where people were like, oh yeah, it's great. Like come down here because maybe they perceive me to be a little more lower income than. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to go back and look at those. Now. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: yes. So so yeah, like kinda leads into the next question, which is about language. Um so what does language have to do with housing discrimination? Since this is yeah. a language <laughs> podcast. Yeah, exactly.
2: Um everything. Um no, I <laughs> so, um so discrimination Um, still legally is an act that only occurs in proximity. So I have to be in front of you for you to establish my membership of one of those protected classes, my race, my color, my national origin, my familial status. But how you sound on the phone actually keeps you from getting to the door in a lot of circumstances. And so there has never been a successful case of dialect discrimination tried in the United States um, in the 50 years because that discrimination is something that has to happen in physical proximity. You have to see me. Although that's ridiculous. We know that we recognize individual voices um, and individual characteristics from people's voices. Um, We've shown that in several different types of scientific studies um, in cognitive science and psychology and linguistics. So what I'm doing is trying to build out um, evidence to be used exactly for that, to allow people to go into the courtroom and say, I sound this way, and when people hear me, they hear a black person, or they hear an older person, or they hear a southern person. Um, And that comes with certain attitudinal assumptions about a voice
1: that's really important and um you're kind of telling us um the answer to this next question that i had was and i knew you know the answer is are there certain speakers that are affected or discriminated against more than others
2: yeah well (laughs) so this so what's surprising about this phenomenon is that it actually works kind of in all directions so basically um it's sort of like a we want our neighborhood to be our neighborhood sort of phenomenon okay yeah so it's like in the african-american community, if somebody sounds more affluent um, or white, um, they may say, do the steering thing and be like, you don't want to live here. You know, maybe you won't fit in or this kind of stuff. Um, so it it is basically just different sounding people. However, um, <laughs> minoritized people minoritized speakers are at a disadvantage in general in the housing market and so sounding more like um, a member of a minority community whatever minority community that might be is um puts you at a disadvantage on the phone
1: and can we um can we hear some examples of what that might sound like linguistically
2: so i in this study so the original study was done um there was a study done 20 years ago by, um, Pernell, it's So John Baugh is a linguist and he has, um, three native dialects. Um, so I'm using my three native dialects in this study, which are um which are African American English, Southern American English, and standard American English. I emphasize that they're my native dialects because people often ask me if I am performing um these when I'm doing the work. It's like, nope, I just I have three voices. um they represent like who I am and what I do and where I'm from. Um, and it's funny because we do these kind of studies with bilinguals, and nobody ever is like. When you're performing Catalan or when you're speaking standard Spanish, it's like, nope, nope, I just speak two different languages. My African-American voice is something more like, hello, I'm interested in looking at an apartment and, you know, I'd like to learn more about your property. Um, And the Southern voice is like, hi, I'm calling today to find out about what apartments y'all might have available. Right. And then the standard voice is more like this, except it's more like a radio voice. It's kind of like, hello, I'm calling to learn more about your property. Whoa, like, it's like, Excuse really me. Just, <laughs> you want to talk about vocal fry. That's pretty much all that it is. Whoa. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So.
1: Listeners, we have one person here with us. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah no, I that's... swear. <laughs> yeah. So Amazing. The interesting point, we, um, so I tested those um, voices early on in this study to see, um, to make sure that people we're hearing three different people um, and what they thought about those people. So in an utterance like I just gave you, just a couple seconds long, we got three very different attitudinal assessments. So actually the the African American voice is interesting because it's all the extremes. It sounds Less pleasant, less feminine, less trustworthy, less confident, um, nice. but more poor, more Whew. difficult, and more masculine than any of the other voices. Um, the, the Southern voice has... Um, a few. It's the least masculine and the least difficult sounding. It's also the most feminine sounding, which is interesting. And the standard American voice sounds the most educated, the most rich. There's there are different measures for rich and poor sounding voices. Um, so it's the least poor and the most rich, and the most pleasant, the most confident, the most trustworthy. And the range is um, within about twenty percent. So um, the African American voice sounds twenty percent less trustworthy than the standard American voice Um, and those words that we asked people actually came from a national survey of rental professionals that I did so I asked people how do you describe an ideal tenant Um, and they used words like confident educated trustworthy right
1: what does confidence have to do with having being an ideal tenant? Get yeah. out of town.
2: <laughs> That's a but, like Yeah, but what? they were just talking about like people over the phone. Like people come with okay, questions yeah. ready and they ask, you know, ah. like this kind of stuff. Okay. So they know what they're doing. Basically. You're not you're not
0: wasting
1: their time exactly oh because yeah. their time is so precious right oh my
2: gosh. no but don't
0: you yeah, hate I, it I, when people I, waste your time
1: <laughs> i mean what do i have to do <laughs> no but i'm hearing your i'm hearing these assessments that people have of the three different um voices that you use and there's like a brock just like feel it in the pit of my stomach i'm just like i'm not surprised but can't we be better and I'm, i'm also like trying to be understanding because these are like narratives that we've all lived with our entire lives like we don't even know we're doing this a lot of times but it's so gross when you hear it out loud yeah and it's interesting because we we talked
0: about these things in in previous episodes although the one about like black english hasn't come out yet yeah um but uh so southern english and how uh, southern american english and how yeah it's so kind of associated with femininity does not surprise me um given what what we talked about with uh beth Troutman, yeah
1: and i I, when you when you use the southern voice i was like southern belle so like i went straight to a feminine like femininity thing
2: yeah yeah in my mind yeah it's interesting because um i was i was a little surprised about like the masculine sounding part of the african-american voice of like i didn't expect I just didn't, ex- I didn't know what to expect when I put those measures out there, but the fact that they even like tipped the scale towards like this, like the masculinity was interesting. Um, I think because the standard voice is so low, right? I mean, the F0 yeah. is just yeah at the floor um, for the standard voice, but, and yet the other one is much more. Yeah. So it was, it's interesting.
0: When we talked to Nicole Holiday about this exact same kind of study and also about, you know. Uh, black English but especially like black men's English so it's it it tends to be associated with masculinity just that particular variety like so black men sound more masculine so it doesn't actually surprise me that much that even though you're a woman that would still apply Mm -hmm. like it just we have the the conception is black equals male yeah which is a whole other yeah. thing to unpack.
2: It's, <laughs> it's absolutely true. And we see that in Nicole's work in um and Norma Mendoza Denton's work on Chicano yeah. as well of like this um this like hardness with um any sort of any sort of dialect that's sort of mostly characterized in the media by male speakers.
1: Yeah. Right and and, and dangerous male speakers, right? right? If we're consuming media and movies and TV. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, but I've been thinking, oh, yep uh the the way that we um perceive chicano english is gonna be like cholo right or like this very like gangster type of of el chapo or yeah or now we're having drunk uh except <laughs> uh, he you know he's a spa like that's different since yeah. he's a, a spanish speaker from mexico
2: but but yeah i know but i think it, it still infects the the feeling well, sure. about it oh it's sure. true yeah, yeah, people yeah. don't make that distinction. Um, no, yeah, so my. Study yeah, these is are second to,
1: distinctions, right? Yeah, like yeah. when people you're asking people to do these assessments, they're kind of like this is the gut feeling,
2: right? And they get the the thing is, it happens. I mean, we can make accurate identifications in the space of a breath. So just me breathing in to say the word hello, just hello, like, that's enough for you to know that I'm female to have a good idea of what my age is um, and mm. wow. um, and race. So you can get all three of that in just, like, you know, a couple hundred milliseconds. Um, so I give them a second... Uh, t- a, a one to two seconds of um, stimuli and I am a different person. They craft an entirely different person in their head, which is crazy. Um, yeah. So wow. my study is designed to look at the interplay of region and race, like with respect to the standard, because this thing does happen in all directions. So it's sort of like some areas will want a Southern speaker over a standard speaker or a black speaker. Um, and so it's sort of like that paired with the housing history of this city.
0: So let's go back to the standard voice immediately. And, and we've talked about this before, but on a different podcasts, um you reminded me of maria bamford do you know her uh no oh, okay god no one knows her so she's a comedian and she has like this really strange like high-pitched voice normally but she can put on that radio voice that you did and like, it makes her sound like she uses it on purpose to make her sound like more uh competent because like her whole thing is i'm mentally ill so like she puts on this voice and she's like suddenly I'm a normal human being and I have all this money and you know so it's just, she uses it really effectively and it's kind of interesting. Oh, I've been seeing this uh, therapist, the rapist therapist. I can't say it properly because I don't take it seriously. And, uh, the therapist said, uh, "You should really sing your anxieties aloud. It takes the power away from them." Like, singing them a lot will, you know, make me feel less anxious. Just sing them a lot. Why don't we call those anxieties gremlins? Why don't we just call them anxieties? Okay, would you feel more comfortable with calling them goblins? (laughs) Okay, goblins.
2: Yeah, we talk about this a lot of, like, stand-up comedy doesn't exist without style shifting. Um, It is, like, only people moving between these, like, very, um, like, characterological voices. Um, It's really fascinating to me how it's, like like people don't think you can do this with a voice okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah we need
0: to do one on stand-up comedy now i'm realizing
2: (laughs) i'm interested in whether or not
1: this is my gut instincts and i i know better um i think is that this is a city problem is that true
2: um well it's sort of an everywhere problem i mean it's 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 interesting, right, because rural areas have really a set character to them. There's not a lot of like different, you know, like uh, in a rural area, it's going it's not going to be like this is the black part of town and this is the whatever part of town. Right. There's just town and there's there's not a lot more there. This problem plays out in a lot of cities simply because of the history of cities in the United States um, and particular with the highway project. Um, from Eisenhower that literally split cities in half um, and reinforced areas that were already segregated, that were becoming desegregated, um, you know, legally, but then reinforce those separations um, with physical structures. And then the redlining that has gone on with all of the um, like homeowners loans when they started in the, the late 70s really reinforced keeping those areas to have their own character. And that just didn't happen as much in rural areas um, simply because they didn't put highways down and <laughs> people weren't getting loans. Yeah.
1: That that was my feeling. And um, you you must know blockbusting. Yes. <laughs> which is something I just learned about. And I wonder, I'm sure you read it, The Color of Law. Oh, I actually have it.
2: Yeah, it is it is on my desk. I'm taking a class at the law college this semester. And it's very fascinating.
1: Yeah, so I got it at the Tenement Museum. That's why I brought it up. Oh, nice. And I would recommend it to everyone. Because I just thought blockbuster was like a video store. But blockbusting, an example of it is when they would... Hire an African American woman to who has a baby to just walk through white neighborhoods and basically, um, like the realtors would be like, "Oh them. well, well, looks like the the uh, the element that we didn't want to come in are coming in. So you better sell your homes to us dirt cheap and get out of here." Yeah, mm-hmm. it's yep. fucked up, and I had no idea about this. Um, yeah, so redlining and then all that other stuff. I mean, we have quite the history of of
2: segregation here. It is, it was absolutely, absolutely amazing to me to see how complicit um, government officials and, um, you know, businesses were in white flight. I mean, you think that it's it's just like, oh, this was a product of the times. It was like, no, no, people literally drove white people out of cities. Like, they drove them out. Um, yeah. And then instantly we're like, look how bad our cities are. And it was like, well. <laughs> <laughs> it was by design. Right.
1: Yeah. And so... I mean, you can see how this is still playing out now in dialect discrimination. Absolutely. Is this kind of work mostly like over the phone type stuff?
2: Yeah, I am. So I'm just, I'm just calling people so they don't see me. Um, I just call and I have like a series of questions that I ask um, about a certain property. They're like publicly listed properties and numbers. I just um, search on a search engine and see, um, and I have like particular neighborhoods of interest Um I've done a ton of archival work. Like, so going back to, like, the corpus linguistics and machine learning and things like that, um, I have a very large corpus of um, apartment descriptions um, going back a number of years um, for, like, how people were talking about property in the area. I also have a ton of these redlining documents of people who went into an area and wrote down street by street. Like, I saw... X spooks today. <laughs> oh God! <Whoa. laughs> right? Oh. Yeah. Oh. In you know, like published government documents. <laughs> um yeah. Right. And so that it's like it's a lot. It's been a lot of like correlating the character of a neighborhood over time. Um. And like. And now I'm doing the doing the experiment, and then later after I get the the calls, it it. I have like perceptual experiments planned for sort of what is the material in the voice that people are picking up on that builds this like social identification, which is something that has eluded us um, so far in a lot of our experimental designs. We don't, uh, John McWhorter has coined this term black scent, um, but we don't, we don't actually know what, the material correlate of that is. So that's what I'm working towards.
1: Yeah. Cause I'm wondering how that's going to interact with Southern too.
2: <laughs> um, and a lot of people have asked, you know, how do you um, account for like, a, it's a female voice as well. Right. And I'm like, well, at least it's all my throat, right? Like I, <laughs> I am the same person I've controlled for, you know, speaker variants by using my own voice um, in all three. And so I actually think that buys me some good control there, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I can't, yeah, I can't speak to the fact that sometimes maybe it does have to do with me being a woman and not me being Southern sounding or black sounding. But um, I will say that most of the people that answer the phone are female. Um, I don't have a lot of, there just aren't a lot of males that are doing this property managing thing. Um, not in the kinds of places that I'm looking at. Perhaps, I'm not looking, I'm looking at rental properties specifically. Like because you don't usually get it's, it's, you know, they want to see you, they want to meet you, it makes more sense that I'm actually there um, for owning a house, that kind of thing. So
0: right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, maybe later, plus, yeah, there's a bunch of other things going on, too.
1: I mean, I'm wondering if that's a thing that's changed now, if it was mostly men, when um the original study
2: uh, came out. Do you know? Yeah, that's, I don't know. I know that um they, they made a large number of calls. Um, and those places, the housing market has changed so much. So I actually ran into, <laughs> I think that a lot of people in linguistics now are talking about the problems that we have with replication. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, as we are, we are in all the social sciences. <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Um, and so I, um, I ran into that issue of trying, I was going to try and replicate um, the Bay Area, which is where the original study was done is... So, so different now. I mean, the area that was the poorest has three hundred, three million dollar homes in it now. Um, so, it just simply wasn't possible. Things have changed so much about how the housing market works. I mean, there are individuals in the market and that didn't used to be a thing. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. I've talked to John Baugh a few times about like the kinds of places he called, but I never asked um, actually about like, did you get more men on the phone than women?
0: Yeah, that'd just be interesting to to find out if there's been any shift. Because when was that study again? It was in 99.
2: Uh, Published in 99. So. It can't be that different,
0: right? I don't think there was that much of a shift because I think that even, yeah, even probably by the early 90s, it was mostly women. I'm going to guess. So how about in person? I know this isn't about your study, but like, have you... Like, I know you can't always tell, but have you experienced discrimination in the housing market when you show up?
2: I don't know if I necessarily have. I mean, I've lived in several places and I've gotten different apartments. Um, I've never had someone sort of like count me out after meeting me. I have tons of people who have told me stories of this. Um, but I do. I, I. So when I first started doing this study, I realized very quickly that I Because I only use my African-American voice with my family, mostly, um, and a few friends that I was not prepared to use it on the phone. So ah, I had a really interesting. hard time when I, when I pick up a phone and I talk to a stranger, I don't use my African-American voice and that says something. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> yes, so <it> <laughs> I, <laughs> we talked about this a lot. I was like, it's gotta be inauthentic and weird and I can't maintain it cause I immediately want to accommodate. And so what do I do? And, uh, so I practiced for like four months. Um, I was reading everything that I was reading aloud in that guys and I was using it, um, at the grocery store and at the bank and like around and I was like oh (laughs) I mean it was (laughs) like people treat me differently like so differently just hearing this voice come out of me and also like a lot of people ask me if I'm I'm Latina I mean I'm mixed race and so people just don't see blackness in me when I'm uh, out and about um yeah that didn't happen when I was using my African American voice it was clear that they were like okay your questionable ethnicity makes sense now um <laughs> <laughs> and, yep, yep. <laughs> and so I mean literally those those few months really sort of like honed like it honed in for me how potent it is um and how using my standard voice or southern voice um with strangers most of the time because there's something about it that it just comes out when I greet someone because like as a little kid, you know, people tell you to be polite. They tell you to be nice to people when you're out. And that was my main dialect for most of my life um, was the Southern voice. Um, and so, Yeah. It, um, it makes a big difference. And, it, um, and maybe that has something to do with being in Michigan. I don't know.
1: OK, this is where you were doing the practicing out in the world. Right, it was because that's,
2: that's where I am. Um, so it was just in my daily life around here in, in Ann Arbor and uh, suburban Detroit.
0: So where did you uh, develop your Southern voice? Um,
2: so I'm from Knoxville. Knoxville from Tennessee. Largest city in Appalachia. So it's a, oh, it is okay. an okay. urban it's an urban Appalachian dialect which is considerably different than others. Um, it's noticeably urban to other southern speakers. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, even okay. I could tell like you sounded like it sounded like a very polished southern. Yeah. <laughs> so polished, that, you know. yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, is, we talked to Paul Reed about Appalachia. Posh, yeah. And yeah. I still
2: I mean I could tell that I have so much to learn about the region. Paul Reed and I went to the same uh, undergraduate university. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah he's he's a good friend (laughs) he is a A sweetie he's a sweetie (laughs) what a guy anyway (laughs) um
1: yeah uh i actually want to go back to something um you mentioned um earlier like they people were noting whether someone might be old do you find ageism is a thing that happens maybe
2: yeah so i think I mean, it definitely happens on the phone. And I've heard people like, I mean, I've heard people say some things like, so I have this one question um, that sort of gets a little more at like the person's assessment of me as a speaker. Like I ask sort of like a good fit question at the end. Um, and I'll have people say like a young woman like you like won't have trouble with this that and the other thing. So they're definitely like hearing the like youth in my voice. And I guess I sound and look younger than I am. I think that it matters a lot. Um, and that seems to be one of the more salient characteristics in these earlier studies. Um, it's Shawringer et al. 2016. I can send it. Um, if people are interested, but it's um, that's the first thing people pick up on in a voice, um, a voice that they don't know is age, even before gender. So it is one of the more salient characteristics it, more than but I, I, it's all, it's near simultaneous um, okay. age and gender, okay. but you do get um, you do get, age. And especially with like this, um, you know, a minoritized voice, um, like sounds more male. It's sort of like, as I'm trying to figure out if you're a man or a woman, I already know if you're older or younger than me. And you use yourself kind of as like this, it's like an egocentric perception of like, is this person above or below or in the same line as I am? And so I actually do that. So in the first few seconds of the call, I put down my perception of their voice. Um, too. So I'm also looking at sort of like, how that might affect what I am doing, um, what I've perceived in the other person, um, which is a criticism that a lot of people gave the original study. So I'm sort of trying to build that in. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense that it could be a compound. But
0: yeah, it also makes sense that you're comparing your age to everyone, like who you're talking to, because I mean, like lots of languages, you have to know that instantly so that you use the correct forms and we're not as aware of it in english but i know that we clearly we are aware of it we're just not using that information in, in quite the same way Right.
2: it's just not encoded in our morphology but it's definitely something that like people make yeah productive use of in other languages absolutely
1: do you know what they're picking up on is it like frequency i'm not
2: Pitch? sure I, yeah i wish i wish i, yeah. I If it's in the literature, somebody send it to me, please. I have been looking forever. Um, Any study that was talking about what people are looking for, I swear, I've tried to read them all. That is fruitful. That is fruitful space for someone to do that work. If anyone is interested, please pick it up. (laughs) I I encourage it. (laughs) If
0: you're looking for a dissertation topic, here you go. (laughs) Um, Good luck (laughs) getting a bunch of older
2: people into the lab, though. Um, But yes. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. I work with babies (laughs) Okay. So. <laughs> yeah surely
0: yeah. there's a way to get the retired
1: population you surely <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean i could talk to talk to you about this all day i'm wondering if you have it, like any practical advice for our listeners um i mean i don't suspect that we have like a ton of property managers as like a demographic. Um, But I hope that if we do have them, that this is enlightening. Um, But but what about someone who isn't a property manager? You know, just the everyday person.
2: Yeah, so I think um, we've been doing a lot of sort of um, like linguistic, like diversity and like knowledge, like inclusion stuff on campus here. And we keep getting, I I keep getting this question. And so my answer is evolving, but I don't have great, well-formed, actionable solutions, um, except for... Uh, We're not expecting that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I think... um, our ears can be as prejudiced as our eyes. So it really is just something of making that statement over and over again um, for, you know, people in in the classroom and then also, you know, um, just sharing that information of like people possess different voices. It isn't just about belonging to a minority community, every single speaker. And I would, I would argue signer (laughs) um, and writer does this, right? We change the style of the language that we use depending on who we are and what the situation is. So, Anywhere that you have to open your mouth to accomplish a task, this matters. It's not just about minority voices, right? It's about like giving people the awareness that we have like this, you know, this linguistic flexibility, this mutability in our voices that we use every day. Um, And that's really cool that we can do that. I mean, it is just like the, just the, I, I still have such wonder, um, at, you know, this latitude that we have um, when we're speaking. And so I think that sort of encouraging people to see that in themselves, to hear their own their own breadth of production is kind of the the good place to start of sort of being like the awareness of the fact that people who are minority speakers might be treated differently sort of can rise organically from that space. And yeah. And so I like it that, you know, people make like the, I don't talk to my friends. Like I do my boss. I mean, it's like, yeah, that's basically the same thing. It's just, I don't, when I talk to my friends, I talk in a different dialect.
1: I mean, and it's also important to remember, I think that, the way that we speak isn't a protected class but but look at what it's doing and i mean i don't i don't know what there is to be done about that at like you know a policy level but just every like everyday people like us knowing that that is a problem that we aren't protected because of this and yet it has such ramifications what we need we need an rbg on our side yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> on the basis of
0: just voice what? Exactly. Yes. Yes. I I mean, like we got enough uh, talent, enough linguists who could help write the amicus brief.
2: Yeah. Does this come up in your law class? Yes and no. Um, That's actually what I'm doing. So I've been working with a number of collaborators at the Southern Poverty Law Center and then also um, someone at the University of South Carolina, On this particular issue um, of making discrimination something that can happen just through voice alone. Um, And that's that's part of what the perceptual studies um, that I have planned are for, because we need we need some sort of evidence to say, you put my voice on a spectrogram. It has these characteristics. That means people hear blackness. This little, you know, whatever, because we still don't know what to point to, yeah. <laughs> um, <you're> right, right. <laughs> says that I have this in my voice, says that I'm Southern, says that, you know, with these assessments of saying, like, when people hear this, they hear less trustworthy, they hear less confident. So I'm working on that. Um, there's actually a lot of, like, literature on things like voice prints and stuff like that. So it's it's out there. It's just a matter of synthesizing it around the right kind of case. Um, unfortunately, you sort of need someone to suffer this um to be able to stand behind them and support them um and the fact that no case has ever been successful makes um lawyer's really not reticent to attempt it and so it it will happen um it'll happen to somebody important enough <laughs> at some point that it ends up mattering to enough people at once um but i'm I'm confident that um that this will change i mean i i mean i I think that there is enough momentum in different areas for voice to become more like legally recognized um, just in general. Yeah,
1: me too. Yeah. Well, and I think it also helps that there are politicians that are running for president that are actually using as their platform, like housing and housing discrimination. And you would hope organically that this would come up.
0: Not necessarily because they don't think about voice that much politicians. I mean, they use it. They use their Uh, voices. You would
1: think that they would because they they know, you know, I mean,
2: they know about regional features, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, Because they use them. And then when they're like, I'm going to put on the little Spanish I know when I'm talking to uh, Latinx people, even Mm -hmm. though a lot of Latinx people don't speak Spanish, you know, they're definitely like doing these things. And you're Mm -hmm. right, though, it's not always conscious. Well, I or, mean, it's, consci- or... it's, it's, it's conscious at a different level than what we're, what,
0: what we're talking about. And I just don't think that they they think that much about language in general in these yeah. kinds of terms, but especially voice. They yeah. just don't think about it. But that's our job.
1: Right. <laughs> that's our job. I mean, we can, we can, you know, like if people are using our... Um, As a platform saying that they want to get, you know, fight against housing discrimination, then we can say, oh, well, then also look at this while you're doing it. Exactly. Here's here's the thing. I think maybe we should like direct
0: this at the at the candidates that are talking about it. This actual episode, let's just send it to them.
1: Yeah, well, Cory Booker, his 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 announcement was I mean, he was like right out right out of the gate. It was like, you know. There we this go. is what, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Julian Castro was the director of HUD, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. The housing and Urban Development, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. For um, the non-Americans, <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And
1: and he, um, yeah. No, it's really important because I remember this is why I got really interested in it because um, he did like a, I don't know if it's called a policy brief, but it was like, um. When if cops are called for a domestic violence issue, you can, you know, you cannot evict this person because that was happening mm-hmm. a lot is that people were being evicted from their homes when they called to report that they were being abused. Um So that's another thing that, you know, we may not think about when it comes to housing discrimination. So it's just language is another thing that hopefully gets to be important or gets to be talked about in these arenas. So yes no we'll send we'll send you uh kelly to everyone that we can i think this is such an important episode um a really important topic and i was so stoked when i saw i don't know how it happened i think dominique canning uh, for some reason was like saying something and then i was like what does
2: kelly right look at oh my god yeah. we gotta have her on! oh my gosh thanks so yeah it's um yeah, it's yeah. it's been it's been a long road and i'm really glad that it's it's hard to do. It's hard to invite discrimination into my daily life. Um, yeah, you're, yeah. To just be like, I'm going to sit down and allow someone to do this to me on purpose. Um, but I really feel like I, it's, it's worth it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this has been going on since we, for, you know, the beginning of our country. It's been, ever since we were building houses, people were being shut out of the more, de- you know, desirable areas. So I hope that, you know, I hope that there's significant motion on it at some point in my lifetime, at least. Please, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so I think this is the next thing. Like, there's like we're there's many other areas of discrimination that we need to fight. Um, I, I but I, by which I mean like non-linguistically, but. It's time. It's time for linguistics to be part of that conversation.
2: Yeah, really I really think that just making language cooler is something that will really help <laughs> a lot of people. I mean, people just don't know what we do um, yeah. as linguists. It's, and um, yes. I think that like Walt Wolfram's efforts at North Carolina to get linguistics um, the, like into the history of North Carolina textbooks that are taught in every public school. I mean, it's that it's those kinds of efforts that I think are building um you know, the groundwork for these movements that, you know, it really is, I think, just increasing awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I when I do outreach and I'm like, you know, there's people are passing by a booth if I'm doing some sort of outreach like that. I'll be like, You wanna hear about, you know, so and so language or whatever? He's like, why would language, you know, I've I've had people be like, Why is why would my language be important? Like oh gosh, you know, it's like, so important. Interesting. It's not you interesting. It's not yeah. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there are so many people that just don't even know to think about how amazing their voices are.
2: I have a lot of hope for it because it's making its way into popular culture. Like um, with the movies like Black Klansman and Sorry to Bother You this past summer, um, those were two movies about people using voices for these, like, you know, well, maybe Sorry to Bother You wasn't about social change, but it was very much like... It's it's like about this fluid movement of language in different spaces and um, how powerful it is, how really powerful it is for us when we start to think about a person who they are. You always say like, I don't know, that person like sounded sketchy or something like that. Like yeah, it's very it's much true. a matter of like we do a lot of of work um, when we're listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. Well, you're doing it the good work. You are putting
2: in work. So thank you, yeah. Yeah. Work. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for your work. Thank you. It's important. Of it's course. so important. I, I appreciate and, your interest and support.
1: Yeah. Um, Yes, please. Anytime that you make some progress on this, send it to us so that we can share. Uh, we have a little bit of a platform that we can use. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, thank you. That was super fun.
2: Thank you for having this podcast and talking about the things you all have talked about. It's wonderful. I'm... I've been a huge fan from the beginning, so oh, I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> thank, <Yeah>. you.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And when I say it this time, gosh, I just mean it in a different, like, in a just more powerful way. Don't be an asshole. Don't, Don't be an asshole. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Thank
0: you. The Vocal Fries podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granum. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at VocalFriesPod. You can email us at VocalFriesPod at gmail.com, and our website is VocalFriesPod.com.